the seventh season honors the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Past three Sundays, we have heard stories of our Lord being manifested. Now we are in a little green season, such as we have in summer and fall. Still, our Gospel reading from Luke easily relates to showing Christ's power to the world. Passages from Jeremiah and Corinthians are harder set. These things happen when the lectionary provides for the serial reading of the book, as is the case with Corinthians. The passage from Jeremiah comes from the very beginning of his book. Remember, Jeremiah is a major prophet, so he has a big book. As with the rest of the first 25 chapters, this material was dictated by Jeremiah to Baruch, his secretary. Time is around 627 BC. Jeremiah has attained to make clear that it is not he who speaks, but God speaking through him. He begins by saying, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What follows the remainder of our passage this morning is an account of Jeremiah's call to be a prophet. It is both brief and vivid. Here are some facts we can note from. First, Jeremiah had a strong feeling of being predestined for his mission. No other prophet felt such a sense of urgency from God to be his prophet. Second, Jeremiah was at first unwilling to take on this work. He protested that he was but young and would not command respect, and that he was not eloquent, much as Moses protested, and also here echoes of Jonah. Third, Jeremiah was clear from the beginning that he was not only sent to Judah, but to the nations, and that he was set over nations and kingdoms. Fourth, his work was not only the negative of destroying and overthrowing, pulling up and tearing down, but the positive of building and planting. In this commission, God made clear to Jeremiah that he had been formed from the womb for this work. Taking on this task was not optional. Further, Jeremiah was to be a prophet to the nations. His prophecies frequently deal with international matters and the fate of nations other than his own Judah, the southern kingdom. He emphasized personal religion but he was always concerned with the whole nation as well as with individuals within it. For an interesting exercise, consider these words and excluding Jeremiah's responses. Consider these words being spoken by God the Father to Jesus, his only son, while he was still a child. Do they not fit well? I'm not saying that was Jeremiah's intent in recording. That would be a real stretch. But nonetheless, if applied to Jesus, would they not manifest him forth to the nations? They are like a prelude to the words that came from heaven at Jesus' baptism. You are my son, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. Now for the reading from Corinthians. Is there a more famous passage in the Bible? I recall that my senior English textbook at Saratoga High School quoted this passage 
in its entirety from the King James Bible. This was the only entry in that textbook from the Bible. The point was not to preach Christianity, but to reproduce one of the greatest passages in the English language. While the translation we heard this morning is more easily understood by contemporary English speakers, it has lost the beauty and majesty of the King James English. Remember, the King James Bible dates from 1611. Permit me to read it to you from the King James. Maybe it's been a long time since you've read that passage. Or maybe you never did. Either way, listen to it. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so as to remove mountains, have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity wanteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass, dark, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am known. And now I, faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Just one say to follow that. The writers of the King James Bible were masters of the language low these 400 years ago. For the last two Sundays in our readings from Corinthians, Paul has been expounding on spiritual gifts, and today he is still beating that drum. This passage stands easily by itself, but it is the more powerful when placed in its context following the passage read last week, in which Paul lists spiritual gifts in order. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, workers of miracles. Then, healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of tongues. Note, by the way, that speaking in tongues is the last of all the gifts. 
Then Paul introduces the passage for this morning with these telling words. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Remember, Paul is still talking about spiritual gifts. The more excellent gift is not tongues or even prophecy, but love. By that I mean love not of an ordinary or general kind, but the love which is known in the church, the very love of God poured out in Christ. Recall that you have often been told that the Corinthian church was on the wing edge of the dysfunctional church. It seems that one of the dysfunctions was an overarching pride in speaking in tongues. In the next chapter of Corinthians, Paul talks about speaking in tongues and how that relates to the worship of the church. Let's just say that he's strongly opposed to mixing the two. Note how Paul pointedly says, as for tongues, they will cease. Not much ambiguity there, is there? Paul knew that speaking in tongues does nothing to build up the church. He is attempting to point the Corinthians to the higher gifts from his list, where things like teaching, healing, and administration do build up the church. Did you catch the line, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not lost nothing? Paul wrote this letter around 50 A.D. Some 20 years later, and about five years after Paul died, St. Mark, in his Gospel, quotes Jesus as saying, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Note the remarkable similarity in those two quotes. And there are two similar passages in Matthew's Gospel, which is later still. How could Paul have known of this reference 20 years before the Gospel of Mark was penned? Do we attribute it to coincidence? Perhaps. But more likely is that Paul knew of these stories of Jesus by way of the oral tradition by which these stories were passed on prior to the writing of the Gospels. I've always found thought that this passage is so often read at weddings, perhaps due to its frequent use of the word love. This passage has nothing at all to do with romantic love. This shows the danger of translating the Greek word agape as love instead of charity. An important point of meaning is loss. Charity is the act of loving our neighbor for the sake of God. But it is not merely the human quality of benevolence, but the divine graciousness revealed in Jesus Christ. That is the more excellent way that Paul presents to the Corinthians and to us. Since the Feast of the Epiphany, our Gospel readings have all been events showing Jesus to the world as the Messiah. 
heard of his baptism, the wedding at Cana, and his reading of the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue. This morning's passage from Luke's Gospel is a continuation of the Gospel read last Sunday. Recall that Jesus has just completed his 40 days temptation in the wilderness and has returned to his hometown of Nazareth. He is in the synagogue on the Sabbath and has been given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read. He selects and reads a passage describing the expected Messiah. When he has returned the scroll to the attendant, he utters the opening line in our reading this morning. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. At this point, the text gets a little dicey. It seems as though Luke is combining material from Luke's exclusive source, special data, with material from Mark's gospel. Recall that you have been told of the special data and of Matthew's exclusive source, special data, as well as the source they share, Q. In this instance, Luke's effort to blend these two sources, special data and Mark, is less than happy. The other worshipers in the synagogue at first speak well of Jesus and wonder at his gracious words, but in the same sentence, they turn on him and belittle him, saying, Is not this Joseph's son? The rapid turn is a bit jarring. This passage would read better if it conveyed that the attitude of the worshipers gradually changed as the full meaning of what Jesus had said began to sink in. Jesus understands their hostility and responds, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician heal thyself, and what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here also in your own country. This leads to an At this point in his gospel, Luke has mentioned no works of Jesus in Capernaum. Perhaps this passage has been misplaced from a later time. Jesus goes on with the famous line, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. Then to explain his not doing mighty acts in Nazareth, Jesus cites two examples from 1st and 2nd Kings, which show that foreigners sometimes knew God's help when Israel did not. One is the story of Elijah coming to a widow in Phoenicia in the midst of them and miraculously multiplying her meager little bit of food so that it feeds her and her son and Elijah until rain comes. And when the boy dies, Elijah brings him back to life. The second is the story of a Syrian army commander who was afflicted with leprosy and goes to Elisha and is healed miraculously. Both illustrate a prophet of God ministering to a non-Jew. Either of these citations should have been sufficient to silence the wagging tongues, but they do not. Instead, the mob is enraged and throws Jesus out of town and would have thrown him off a cliff. But he passes right through the mob and walks away. This puts me in mind of some schoolyard bullies picking on the 75-pound weakling 
and taking his lunch money. Doesn't every schoolyard have such? But now I guess they would take his iPod instead. Can you see the 75-pound weakling simply walking away from the bullies untouched? It stretches credulity. But this story suggests the moral authority of Jesus' presence, by which the mob was all. He needed to show no act of violence to match theirs. He simply passed through them and walked away. It's a bit like Moses parting the Red Sea and walking through it. And isn't it a powerful manifestation of Jesus' messianic powers? So we have three stories. One, the story of a man called to be a prophet. The second, a treatise about the centrality of love of neighbor. And the third, dealing with manifesting Messiah in the world. During this epiphany time, spend a bit of time thinking on the importance of the world knowing God's only Son and how central to his message is the love of neighbor. And if you were to happen to make God's only Son known to another of God's creatures, that would be another manifestation of the Messiah to the world. And that would be a very good thing.